0: I'd like to welcome this episode's sponsor, CBS Reality, home to larger-than-life characters at the heart of authentic and meaningful stories. CBS Reality begins September with a special focus on young people overcoming personal adversity, starting this Saturday, the 3rd of September, with the premiere of My Extreme Stammer and Me at 7.05am, repeated at 8.40pm. For emotional and captivating storytelling, watch DSTV Channel 132. And for all the latest updates, follow CBS Reality SA on Facebook. A huge thank you to CBS Reality for sponsoring I Lived Through This.
1: Oh, I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon, they seem gonna sleep this night, try to catch me howling at the moon. The last thing I remember was climbing on the plane. If we do not do it, she will not survive. Splinters of glass coming towards me.
0: Try to catch me howling out. The stories told on I Lived Through This are told by those who experience them in good faith. The views expressed by the survivors in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of me, the podcast or any sponsor of the show. Some of the stories on this podcast may include triggers for some listeners, including descriptions of injuries, sexual violence, abuse and other triggering topics. Please consider this when listening to this podcast. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from my other podcasts, True Crime South Africa, or the Devil's Dorp Companion podcast. Throughout my podcast journey, in talking to survivors and the family members of victims, I discovered the life-changing power of stories. Stories told from the heart as a narrative of a human being's lived experience are enormously impactful for both the storyteller and the listener. In my new podcast series, I Lived Through This, I bring you the stories of ordinary people who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and survived to tell you the tale in their own words. From getting trapped in a destructive cult, Surviving an abusive relationship, living through a natural disaster, life-changing disease, and even a fight for survival with a wild animal. Join me for these powerful tales of facing the unimaginable and fighting to be able to say, I lived through this. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. Lightning never strikes in the same place twice, right? The stories you've heard so far on I Live Through This have been shocking and oftentimes tragic and painful. But for the most part, they've involved survivors who've lived through one major event in their lives, and the rest of the story is them dealing with that event. Today's survivor, though, is a little different. Tracy Bolton Survived not one, but two events that very easily could have ended her life. And they happened within a year of one another. This is Tracy's story.
1: My name's Tracy Bolton, and I'm now 47 years old. Just a little bit of background about me um, I'm a South African born and bred girl. I was schooled in Port Elizabeth and Durban, and uh, wasn't really much for school. In terms of academics, I just loved going there to be with uh, my classmates, my friends and I love doing sports. So I did what I needed to do to get through school, but my passion really came afterwards when I always knew I wanted to be in a career where I was dealing with people because people have always fascinated me, and I've always wanted to travel the world so I did a three year diploma at um, PE Technicon, which is now, I think, um, NMUU, Nelson Mandela University, in travel and tourism. and Straight after that, I moved from Port Elizabeth to Johannesburg because I knew if I wanted to get into sales and, um, you know, be more people orientated, being in Port Elizabeth in a small town wasn't going to be where it was going to happen. Anyway, I started as a travel consultant that wasn't really for me um, because it was a desk job. And um, soon afterwards, I went for an interview as PA to um, a guy called Rolf at SAA IndoJet Travel in Bryanston. And during the interview, he said to me, Have you ever thought about being in sales? Because I see you as a salesperson. And I said, It's my dream to be in sales. So he says, I don't have a position, but I'm going to create a position for you because that is where I see you. You can name the position, whatever you want it to be, sales, PR, marketing. um, But that's where I see you. I don't see you as my PA. And that's how I actually got into sales, like really green fingers, didn't know what to do, but he did this for me. And it was really great that he had all this faith in me. And then um, being still young, I moved back to PE, Port Elizabeth or Kuberger and i joined imperial car rental as a sales executive and i moved pretty much up the ranks very quickly with them but the weird thing was i didn't have anything to see how my figures were or whatever i was just going in blind i had i didn't you know in those days you had little telly boxes with names written on pieces of paper so i'd just go visiting people and then the one day a group message was sent on the computer saying Congratulations, Tracy, for being the highest person bringing in results, you know, and I was like, what? I actually thought I was doing them a disservice being there because I didn't know what I was doing. So clearly I was doing something right. And I think it was just my way of connecting with people because I've always had a fascination with people. And I've always had a belief in being in a career that you're passionate about. So I moved from Port Elizabeth to Johannesburg, where I became key account manager with Imperial Car Rental. And while I was there, I was um, sales executive of the year. Um, And then from there, I moved with them to Cape Town and also as a key account manager. And that year, I was also sales executive of the year. So two years in a row, um, which is a testament, um, I would say, to my passion for people and for just loving what I do.
0: I really resonated with this early part of Tracy's story. During my years in corporates, I too had someone like her boss, Ralph, who saw possibility in me and put me into a position I had zero experience in. And I actually did really well. A lot of the skills I learned in that job are ones I use to do what I do today. I had a lot of these hand-up moments in my career And I've gone on to do my best to help others and give them a hand up too where I can. And as you'll hear, the opportunities that Tracy was given would also later inspire her to be a better leader and help others grow. And there'll be more of these beautiful little synchronicities in Tracy's career going forward.
1: I then decided I wanted to get out of car rental and into the hotel game. And somebody came up to me out the blue who I don't even know to this day. And they said, there's this hotel and it's a five-star hotel. And they are looking for a sales manager. And I think you'd be the perfect fit. So I applied and I went and it was with Sun International. And I went in as key account manager and it was the job of my dreams. And I excelled very well with them again. calling on people, selling groups, conferences to Sun City, the Table Bay, Wild Coast, all those fantastic properties that Sun International has. As luck would have it, I was then um, awarded Key Account Manager of the Year. With that, um, I wanted to grow because I've always wanted to grow in my career. I've always known where I wanted to be in my career. So I knew if I was going to grow, I had to be in Johannesburg and a position became available and um, they offered it to me. And it was quite a senior position in that I looked after um, the finance portfolio, which is responsible for 90% of the um, conferences that go into um, Sun City and all their big properties that they look after. And I was there for a year. And after being there for a year, luck would have it, I was again key account manager of the year. But being there for two years, that was in 2010, I decided I had done enough in terms of proving myself as a salesperson, I wanted to get into a role where I could lead and manage and inspire a sales team. And all the knowledge that I had learned since being in sales in 1999 to now 2010, I could pass on to people and help them to develop themselves and find the passion in being in sales, you know, and and seeing the success that I had had in my career being passed on to younger people. But unfortunately, um, there weren't any positions at Sun International. And this little company um, called Extraordinary, they offered me the position. They took a chance in me and they made me head of sales and marketing. And I had absolutely no experience in managing, leading a, a sales team. And I had a national sales team underneath me. But being the person that I am and the positive energy that I have, I just took it all in my stride. And I was there for two years. And at the end of my second year, I was awarded executive of the year. And that was um, basically um, a head of department of the year. So I thought, okay, clearly I'm doing something right, you know, with no formal training or educational, just, you know, doing these kind of things by just being myself and, and, and being who I am. And then I was approached by the Radisson Hotel Group, and specifically the Radisson Blue Heart Train Hotel. And it's an international brand, and I've always dreamed of being with an international brand. It was a no-brainer for me. And I went over to them as Director of Sales and Marketing in 2012, and I had a sales and marketing team underneath me. And We just made such a success of that hotel. We grew the corporate business and it was really, really a fantastic job for me. I I was passionate about the people. I was passionate about the team. I was passionate about the hotel um, and I just loved what I did. But then being the person that I am, I wanted to stretch myself a little bit further. And I wanted to know that the success that I had done in South Africa throughout my career was it just luck and just because I was in the right place at the right time, or is it because it's truly i'm 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 pretty good at what I do, you know i'm I'm just lucky to be passionate and be in a job that I'm passionate about. So I decided I wanted to move overseas. and my husband and I agreed that whoever you know managed to get a job first because we were going to move as a team, not one and the other follow, as luck would have it, a recruiter found me on LinkedIn, Daniel Walracht. and he just phoned me out the blue and he said, I've seen your CV on LinkedIn and it really resonates with me. He initially looked for me in Africa and I said, you know, Daniel, I don't want to be in Africa. I want to go overseas. Um, So he says, okay, well, being a South African, it's easy to get you into the Middle East which I agreed hundred percent. He put me forward for three positions. One was the um, Grand Hyatt Dara Creek in Dubai. The other one was for the Grand Hyatt in Doha. And then the third one was for the intercontinental Phoenicia, Beirut. And when he said Beirut, Lebanon, I was like, are you mad? I mean, you know, my thoughts of Lebanon were from the eighties where there was a civil war and everything. And he said, just do me a favor go on Google and look what, what Lebanon is like and go look at this hotel. So I said, okay. Anyway, 15 minutes later, I phoned him and I said, I want the Lebanon position. So he said to me, okay, but we need to first get you, you know, an interview interview. So I flew to Doha and I flew to Lebanon, decided not to go towards the Dubai one, because I said, I'm getting too confused with all of these jobs that he's wanting me to, you know, go for interviews for. So let's just narrow them down. So I only chose those two. I loved both of them, but I really, when I flew into Lebanon, the people, the culture, The city of Beirut itself, you know, it's an eclectic mix of old and new. It's a mix of cultures, you know, and I just fell in love with it. So my first interview was in Lebanon. And when I spoke to the general manager and to the HR director, I was like, I spoke as if the job was mine. I left there and I still sent her a message saying, I look forward to seeing you, um, you know, when I come to work for you. Then I went to Doha and as well, uh, I met with the general manager, Chris Frazen, and I loved him and uh, I loved the hotel. I mean, it's also spectacular. Both of them were five-star, you know, luxury brands. I just felt with Doha, it still was like dead in terms of it's sand, there's no trees, there's no culture really, there's no history to, to Doha. And I just felt there would be more for me to do in, in, in Lebanon. So I got a job offer for both of them, and my husband and I decided Lebanon was the one that we were going to go to.
0: This would be a fateful decision for both Tracy and her husband. But of course, they could have no idea of that at the time. So Tracy and her husband make all the preparations necessary for immigration, and they set off on their Middle Eastern adventure. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read about Tracy's story, I immediately thought what she thought the first time she was offered the job. Beirut? Who the heck willingly goes to Beirut? Yeah, I know. Really ignorant and uninformed initial reaction. Beirut has actually become a really popular travel destination, and although it has its safety risks like any place in the world, it's really not the place I pictured in my previously uninformed mind. Oh well we live and learn. A quick note, a few seconds into this next clip, Tracy's dog makes an appearance. When I'm recording and there's weird sounds in the background, I usually take them out, but I have a strict policy about not removing dogs. Loving animals is part of what I think makes us human, and this podcast is all about being human. So say hi to Tracy's dog when you hear him. So in uh, June of
1: 2018, I packed my bags and off I went. And I had a team of 24 people, all young, eager. I was in my element. I had a marketing team of nine people. And then the balance of my team were based on Proactive and reactive salespeople. So the proactive people sales were on the road and the reactive people were the ones doing the quotes and everything for the conferences and events. And I just set to work getting to know, first of all, Lebanon, their first language is Arabic. Their second language is French. And their third language is English. And I don't know French or Arabic. But I made a point of learning, you know, the basics like, um, you know, marhaba, how are you, you know, all the basics so that I could just show respect when I was calling on clients with my team so that they could see I had made an effort. But in Lebanon, everybody generally in that league and level speaks English back. I had a fantastic, fantastic career there. um, And I loved my team and inspiring them. And they were just so eager to learn. They were like sponges. Any bit of information I gave them, they just took it on board. And to see them grow and develop was just just so rewarding for me. The nice thing about Lebanon is my husband and I got to travel and explore the history and the culture of the country. I mean, Baalbek, where it's the, the most the ancient ruins, the most oldest Roman ruins in the world. Actually, are there in Baalbek. You know, we went to Batroun, which is um, one of the oldest cities in the world. You know, we just explored the country. went to the cedars. It was just wonderful. Um, and being in the Middle East and being so close there, we were also able to travel quite a bit. So in the, the May of 2019, I did three international trips. I went to ITB Berlin and then my husband and I spent a week there traveling. I then went to Turkey and then my husband and I did a trip to Bali. I would always suffered from whenever I was flying, my feet would swell, but by the time that I had landed, a day later, my feet would be back to normal. Then we came back to um, Lebanon, and then I was off to uh, Muscat in o- Oman for the IHG commercial workshop. When I flew there, as I landed on the plane and I stood up, I felt this cramp in my calf. But I, I thought, well, oh, that's odd. It felt like I had, I had pulled a calf muscle, but you know, I've I got a half-hand threshold. And I went to the conference and the highlight of my career was there where I was awarded IHG um, Commercial Leader of the Year out of 147 hotels, 2019. And that was it. That was like, I have made it not only in South Africa, but here as a leader and inspirer. This is what I have worked for in my career. And I had been in Lebanon and i had been there for a year and it was just the most wonderful experience for me. And now what I'm about to tell you is the last that I remember. The last thing I remember was climbing on the plane to go back home to Lebanon. So as the rest of the story goes, it is all hearsay um from what people have told me my husband,
0: my work colleagues and everything. So a few things you'll want to remember here. Firstly, Tracy's been flying a lot in a short space of time. Secondly, Her feet often swell when she flies, but that's something she's just gotten used to. And thirdly, that strange cramp in her calf when she stood up after that flight. And yes, you heard her correctly. She does not remember the two weeks after that cramp. And you're about to find out why. Two weeks went by where I went back to
1: work and um, my team had a celebratory party for me you know for my award and that award I must tell you wasn't my award alone I wouldn't have gotten that award if it wasn't for my phenomenal team so it was a a party for all of us another a party was done um, or a ceremony from the heads of department you know for me for getting this award so it was really a really great two weeks. And then I woke up one day and I felt very sick in my stomach. And um, being in a five-star hotel in Lebanon, they have a doctor and a nurse on site permanently. So I sent a message, um, a WhatsApp to my general manager saying, I'm not feeling well today. I'm not going to come in. And then as protocol, you always let the nurse know so she can put it on her records. And I sent it to Edwina. And she said, please just come in. So I went in um, with Uber, because I used to Uber everywhere. The doctor had a look at me and they should have picked up the signs basically that I'd been traveling. My feet were still swollen, uh, you know, and everything. And they sent me to a hospital called Trad, which is the traditional hospital, a private hospital there. And they diagnosed me with a stomach um, virus. By now my husband had joined me at the hospital and um, at five o'clock they discharged me and we went back home with the uber as i climbed out the car uh, i went and sat at the table outside our complex and god was talking to the complex manager and the next minute he looked at me and my head was on the table and when he lifted it up i was blue in my lips and i was frothing and they just said call the ambulance and they were just like my husband was like i'm not waiting for the ambulance to come and my husband's a very big strong man the um, manager of the complex he just stopped a car in the road and they just said we need your car please and the lebanese are the most loving giving friendly people you'll ever meet and between the two of them they got me in the car my husband sat in the back and he started giving me cpr And he phoned Edwina and Edwina said, you take her to AUBMC. Now, AUBMC is the American University Beirut um, Medical Center. So it is first class, one of the best hospitals in the Middle East. And being American funded, um, it's a training hospital. So they have all all the facilities and all the specialists that you can imagine there. On arrival um, at the hospital, I went into cardiac arrest. What they had discovered was that I had had a massive pulmonary embolism. And this pulmonary embolism had been caused by a DVT, which is a deep vein thrombosis, which was that calf muscle, that I, that sprain that I felt climbing off the plane. That was actually the DVT. In hindsight, if I had known, I would have gone and seen to it, but I had no clue.
0: Deep vein thrombosis or DVT Occurs when a blood clot or a thrombus forms in one or more of the deep veins in the body, usually in the legs. Deep vein thrombosis can cause leg pain or swelling. Sometimes there are no noticeable symptoms, but in Tracy's case, that cough spasm had been the sign. But as many people wouldn't, she didn't know that. So when that clot formed in Tracy's leg that day on the plane, and she carried on with the next two weeks of her life. It started a journey, and as she travelled, the clot travelled, following the pathways of her veins, up her leg, through her abdomen, and eventually ending up in an artery in her lung. When a clot lodges in your lung, it's referred to as a pulmonary embolism. As Tracy says, the doctor she saw that day should have spotted the signs. Okay, he didn't know about the leg cramp, but he knew she'd been flying, and her feet were very swollen. But DVT is the third most common vascular disease. It kills 300,000 people a year in the United States alone. But I can speak from personal experience, in saying that, for whatever reason, clotting issues is not something most doctors will talk to you about. Until last year, I had no clue that there was something which is essentially a triad of death for women over 35. The three things that make up this triad are being over 35, being a smoker, and being on an estrogen contraceptive pill. Those three factors have been proven to significantly increase the chances of blood clots in women. But very few doctors will tell you that, at least in my experience. Now this triad doesn't necessarily apply to Tracy. She would later find out that she did have a genetic marker for blood clots, which can be quite easily tested for. Except no one ever told her to do it. It would be discovered that the genes tracy had inherited which became markers for dvt came from her grandfather who'd had a stroke so that is certainly one genetic clue you want to look for if you've had a family member who's had a stroke get yourself checked for the dvt marker tracy's sister also got tested and she hadn't inherited the marker the blood clots in tracy's lung Had essentially formed a roadblock for blood flow her heart would desperately try to pump faster and faster to get blood everywhere it needed to go but eventually it would give out
1: so what had happened was i had a pulmonary embolism which um, caused a cardiac arrest they did cpr on me initially for six minutes and then i went back into cardiac arrest And then they did CPR on me for 46 minutes. Um, Now that's unheard of that they do CPR, um, but I kept coming and then going, coming and going. By now they had done scans on me um, and they had put an ECMO, which is a machine that they put into your jugular here in your neck. um, And it takes the pressure of your organs from working and it sort of does the function of your organs so your organs can rest whilst they could try and understand what was wrong because they had now discovered the PE. They had put me on Wolverine and the clot had been sorted out, but I was still not recovering. I was still just flatlining, if I put it to you in, in simple terms. They phoned two doctors to come in and have a look at me. And two of them said, no, there's no, they're not coming in. They they didn't see any hope. And then they phoned a Dr. Waleed Faraj who is my hero. He is my everything. And he was head of research for surgery. And that is the only reason I think he came in, you know, because he he came in to have a look at me. He went to my husband and he said, we have to go in and do exploratory surgery on your wife. If we do not do it, she will not survive. I'm giving her a 0.01% chance of survival going in and doing the surgery. But if we do not do it, she's not going to survive at all. And obviously my husband, I mean, he was in a total flat spin and he phoned my sister, my parents and everything. They said, you sign those papers because she's going to die either way if you don't sign those papers. So um, they went in and what they discovered was through the CPR that the emergency staff were giving me, they had um, split my liver. And Dr. Farage did a procedure on me, which had been done, I think, maybe twice in the world before, where they package your liver because your liver is the one organ that can regenerate itself. So he packages my liver and then he stitched me up and then it was like a 40-hour, eight-hour wait to see how it would recover. Then they went back in and everything seemed to have mended and he could take off the, the packaging. But because of the trauma to my liver, my kidneys also failed, which meant um, my kidneys weren't working. I woke up only 10 days later. So now is only when I start remembering anything. And what I remember is just waking up and there was this bright light and, and I could hear my husband's voice. And he was like, Tracy, you're in hospital. And I was thinking, oh, I must have fainted somewhere. I mean, I had absolutely no clue. And he's like, you've been in hospital for 10 days. And I was like, no, I, I just I I just, I didn't understand what he was saying. And then slowly but surely the heads of department kept coming in and they were looking at me and saying, you're a fighter. You're a miracle, Tracy. You keep fighting. You're a survivor. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought, you know, everybody was a bit loopy. And then in came Dr. Farage and he was like, Tracy, my name's Dr. Walid." Um, What's my name? And I said, Dr. Walid Came in 20 minutes later and he said, Tracy, what's my name? And I couldn't remember. And then I was like, hang on, how can I not not remember his name? And that is when I think the mental trauma set in for me is that um, it wasn't more of the physical side that was affected. It was my brain that had been affected by this pulmonary embolism. And I had to, I realized very quickly that I had to, hang on a second, because he would come in every day, at least three times a day. What's my name? And he would get cross with me when I wouldn't remember it. So in my mind, I started saying, okay, how can I start remembering his name? And I sort of associated his look with somebody that was um, Waleed at where I worked. So then I started feeling proud when he came in. What's my name? And I said, you Dr. Waleed. And he said, good, Tracy, you know. And it made me realize very quickly I needed to start doing things to strengthen my brain because my brain had obviously taken a knock from the pulmonary embolism and
0: obviously being flatlined, you know, for for, for such a long time. Sometimes the things that are necessary to save us do a bit more damage along the way. Well, in Tracy's case, quite a lot more damage. In a 2015 study, it was determined that extended CPR resulted in rib fractures to one-third of patients and sternum fractures to one-fifth of patients. Very few patients experience a ruptured liver, but Tracy did. But if you don't have the CPR, you die anyway, so it's a risk worth taking. The brain issues she was experiencing, of course came as a result of the oxygen deprivation she experienced while being essentially dead for almost an hour. There's another weird thing that happens when our bodies are starved of oxygen-rich blood, and then suddenly it re-enters our system. It's called reperfusion. And because life just cannot be simple, reperfusion is actually a paradoxical, accelerated death of cells, Which occurs as a result of reintroducing blood to the organs. So your cells die without oxygen rich blood, but when they get it back, sometimes they die a bit faster. Makes complete sense. Anyway. This is where Tracy found herself. And I can fully understand why the cognitive difficulties she was having was so terrifying for her. I would have had the same feeling. She's a bright woman who values her intelligence, memory and cognitive abilities. And suddenly that's been ripped away from her in what, for her, seems like the blink of an eye. And also
1: being in ICU wasn't good for me because you are totally isolated from the outside world. So you don't know when it's daytime, when it's nighttime. I all of a sudden couldn't tell from analog clock the time. You know, nothing was making sense. But I had the savvy in my mind to know that when I got out of ICU and I would be put into high-care ward, I would be able to say, okay, now I know what's day, now I now it's night. And then I could sort of get myself back in a routine. I mean, the other thing was I was lying on my back at home. I don't sleep on my back. I sleep on my side. So I was battling to sleep and they were giving me more drugs to sleep, but I was fighting it. Because I went through this phase where I didn't want to close my eyes because I was scared I wasn't going to wake up again. So ICU wasn't a good experience for me, but I progressed pretty well um, in terms of my healing and my mental healing. Soon I was then um, moved into a high-care ward. And that is where I think the real healing began. Because I was able to tell day from night. I had psychiatrists coming in every day and little things like they would say, say the months backwards from August, and I couldn't. And I mean, you know, I mean, how, how difficult is it now when you know, you know? they'd say tracy what is today's date and at that stage it was 13th of august i had to know the date you know and then I, I realized hang on hang on a second something's very wrong here so my husband downloaded brain games on um, my phone which was the best thing he could have ever done and i started doing brain games to strengthen my brain and the other thing that he did was he put music in my ears that i remembered music and i just it was the first time i cried he put music and I started listening to the music and I just cried and I cried and I cried. And he was like, is everything okay? And I just looked at him and I said, everything is going to be just fine. And I think I needed that release of that, you know, everything that had bottled up also finally understanding everything that had happened to me. I mean, I hadn't even known that they had cut open my stomach literally from the top to the bottom, from the the right to the left, and I had this acceptance, okay, this is where I am. How am I going to get strong? How am I going to get better? Because it was not going to be a subject of this is going to be me for my life. This is, I, I had no doubt in my mind I was going to go back to work. In fact, I had asked the director of security to please bring um, my calculator so that I could start working out the budgets because I realized it was budget season.
0: Oh, Tracy. Okay, I'll admit if I was in hospital for a pulmonary embolism, ruptured my liver, and had to retrain my brain to think, I too would probably ask for a laptop. So yes, I get it.
1: Anyway, I was in hospital for a total of a month. I was released after a month, and then I was at home for a month, and everybody came to visit me. And the one thing I want to mention is, my husband knew nobody in Lebanon besides the friends he had made at the gym, and my company, the heads of department, the owners of the hotel, everybody just took Grant under their, their arm and they looked after him. They took it in turns to stay with him at the hospital. He was there twenty four seven. I mean, at some stage they said, "Please just go home. We'll stay here with Tracy." And I mean, just it was a testament to what a family orientated nation they really are, and they really looked after my husband. I then had to go as an outpatient for dialysis because my kidneys went working. But I, again, I knew my, my kidneys would come right because it wasn't like I had kidney problems. It was just a reality of what had happened to me. It was a DVT, a piece of the deep vein thrombosis had broken off, gone into my, my, my lungs, caused a pulmonary embolism, caused the cardiac arrest caused the liver failure from them doing CPR, which caused, you know, things. So I knew my lungs would come, I mean, my kidneys would, would sort themselves out. And um, I was on dialysis for three months. And as luck would have it, or not luck, as my positive attitude and telling my my kidneys every time I was there, come now, come now, come right. Um, and three months later, I was fine. So, um, you know, holistically, after a month at home, I was back at work, and I
0: was 100%. So Tracy's all better. She's fighting fit and ready to go. Not a single negative effect from her experience. Um, yeah. No. Tracy realized, as so many people do after they go through near-death experiences like this, that your physical healing is just one aspect of the event. Your body has a phenomenal capacity to heal itself. But while it's doing that, and you're focused on your limbs, organs, cells, and blood flow, something else is growing inside of you. Your body may forget the injuries it's sustained, but it's unlikely to forget the emotional trauma.
1: But you know, when these kind of traumas happen, I mean, I'm speaking all positively, and I was always very positive about everything. Certain things happen that give you challenges along the way. And on my first day back at work, what happened was I tripped down one of the stairs purely by accident. And um, luckily, my little revenue manager was next to me. She, she called me so I didn't fall flat, but I felt the sensation in my stomach. I got a big fright. I got a massive fright. I went to my, my office and I did my work and everything. And unbeknown to me, when it was time to go home, I had ordered my Uber, and I had to go down the escalators, and, and nothing on this earth would make me put my foot on that escalator. And then I walked to the stairs, because there's a beautiful um, staircase as you walk into the hotel, and nothing would let me put my foot on that stair. I froze. I absolutely froze, and I went into total anxiety. At the sta- at that time, I didn't realize I was suffering from an anxiety attack, and all the staff in the hotel knew about me being an expat, being the director of sales and marketing. And the poor bellboy at the bottom could see I was in distress standing up there. And he came up the escalators and he held my arm and we went down together. And then when the, the Uber arrived, there was like a, just a little step off the pavement and nothing. I can tell you, I just froze. Nothing could make me take that step. So he helped me get in the car and that was all great. And then I got home and then um, the, 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 the joke of it all is to get into my apartment. There are these big five wide steps to go down, but there's no railing. And I stood there and nothing would make me take that first step. I just could not take a step. So I phoned my husband. He came up and he helped me down. And then I started worrying about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on with me? Because I've never in my life suffered from any anxiety or anything like this. I've just recovered from this trauma and I'm doing so well. Anyway, um, in the mornings, my team members would fetch me for work because they didn't actually want me to go by myself. So the next morning I went to the staircase and I couldn't take a step up even. I, I had absolutely frozen. So I phoned Mary, who was there to fetch me. I said, Mary, you need to come fetch me. I I can't walk up the stairs. And she would come. And the weirdest thing, Nicole, is if I held onto somebody's arm, I was fine. I would lead the way. But this anxiety developed to such an extent that it wasn't about going down steps that I had an absolute phobia about or going up steps. I started having a phobia walking by myself. I just felt I couldn't handle myself on my legs. And my team, my general manager, the HR director, they all realized what was going on. And nobody in that hotel would let me walk without somebody being around me. And it's not like they thought, "Mm, she's not fit enough to work because mentally I was there again. I was doing budgets. I was doing what it was. This was now something else that had now cropped up. But everybody was there supporting me. And I went again to see my, my hero, Dr. Waleed Faraj. And I said, listen, this is what's going on with me. And he did a few exercises and he said, well, it's nothing physical. So obviously it's something mentally going on. And he made an appointment with the head of psychiatry. And he said, I want you to go see him tomorrow. My team would drive me everywhere. So I always had one, some somebody with me. I mean, I couldn't even walk alone into his office. I was that, I had got that bad. And then he explained to me, I'd suffered from PTSD. He explained it to me that whilst I had blocked out two weeks of my life and going through the trauma and the operations, and I don't remember any of it, and that fall, my body remembers it, basically. And this is my body's way of the PTSD coming out. So he put me on medication, and within three days, it started. I could walk up the stairs, I could walk down the stairs, I could do things. And it was like my miracle pull basically, and I would see him every six months. And
0: um, I could function normally in society. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a term most people would associate with someone coming out of a war zone, for instance, and having seen and experienced some really horrific things. Probably if someone had told Tracy when she was initially in hospital that she'd suffer from PTSD after her life-threatening events, she would have laughed at them. But for the body and mind, there is no hierarchy to trauma. Tracy died. She was brought back. Her body was broken by a small group of blood cells. She witnessed firsthand the fragility of life how, in a second, your entire life can go from vibrant and energy-filled to the very edge of death. That is trauma. And although Tracy hadn't acknowledged it, her brain wasn't going to let her forget. It could have manifested in many ways. For Tracy, it manifested in feeling highly anxious and freezing if she had to go up or downstairs and eventually move around at all without someone being there with her. I would later say to Tracy that I think it's important to point out that how quickly she started feeling better is likely not the standard. I think what Tracy did to help herself in this situation is she acted quickly. She recognised that something was very wrong emotionally, and she was not too proud to ask for help. Had she pushed it down, refused to acknowledge it, or if she'd refused to ask for help? It may have grown, and eventually, she may not have even been able to leave the house. The meds helped her, and Tracy says she has absolutely no issues about being on them. If that's what she needed to get her quality of life back, then, for her, it was no different than taking medicine for any other physical ailment. What Tracy does not know, though, is that this experience, this completely life altering event she's just lived through, was only the beginning. In a way, it was a dress rehearsal for what was about to happen. I was back
1: to my old self. It was just absolutely wonderful. I'd survived this massive trauma. Um, I was functioning, I was, you know, doing well, I didn't need to be helped in any way. And then it was the 4th of August, exactly almost a year later, because it was the 26th of July, when I had my pulmonary embolism. And now 4th of August, never forget that day, one of my staff dropped me off at home, I went upstairs to our apartment. And my husband was standing right by the, the, the window and he was like, Look, Tracy, look at this. Look at the smoke coming out the factory. So I had a look at it. Uh, yeah. And then I went to my bedroom and I got unchanged. I took all my jewelry off. Lebanon's very hot. And I put on a t shirt and I was just in my underwear. And I went back into the living room and I was sitting there on the phone. And um, Grant said all of a sudden, Oh my gosh, come look. It started to get into a fire and i got up so um it's l-shaped couch so i was i was walking towards on my right hand side and as i was walking nicole i just heard this massive this massive explosion and i just saw the glass coming towards it's like splinters of glass coming towards me and the pressure of the explosion we were only 500 meters from the epicenter of the blast it just blew me back with such force, but off my feet so that I landed flat on my face, on, my, on, on the front of my body, and I didn't know what had happened, and I was awake throughout of this
0: experience. On the 4th of August 2020, just a few hundred meters from Tracy's home, a veritable ticking time bomb went off. In 2014, a container ship had offloaded thousands of tonnes of ammonium nitrates into Hangar 12 at Beirut's port. Ammonium nitrate is a combustible chemical compound commonly used in agriculture as a high-nitrate fertiliser, but it's also used in the manufacture of explosives. It is a highly dangerous compound. Through what would later be revealed as severe mismanagement and corruption at the port, the terrifying cargo had remained in Hangar 12, unchecked for seven years, until on the 4th of August, it exploded. The blast that had just sent Tracy flying across her apartment killed 218 people and damaged large parts of the city. The story behind how and why the ammonium nitrate came to be there is an interesting one, and definitely worth delving into. There's a New York Times article about it, and several others you can find online. I'm not going to get into that here, because this is Tracy's story, and she and her husband Grant were two of the 31,000 people severely injured in the blast that day.
1: And I was just lying there until everything settles. It's so funny because I didn't know what had happened. And I was like, oh my gosh, there could be a suction, and and that's how I'm going to die. I'm going to die being sucked out of five floors of, you know, down five floors of this building. So I was holding onto curtains, but the joke of it is the curtain rails had been blown off from the, the mirror and were over me and entangled in me and I was at the back of the room at this stage. The minute everything was calm and there was no sound, I felt my fingers. I felt my toes and I, I was like, okay, I've got feeling. I, I'm not paralyzed because it was such force that I've fallen. I thought, oh, no, no, this is this is bad. And something had hit my eye on the fall. And I was hoping that it was like when a boxer gets punched in his eye and his eyes just closed, but I, I, I said, Grant, Grant, and my husband who had been standing right by the window because he was right by the window, he had been knocked out immediately and he didn't get the injuries as badly as me because he was right by the glass. So he just got some glass injuries that he had fractured his foot. He had a massive um on his right arm slice all the way up to his up his arm, he had a cut above his neck on his forehead and above his eye. And he got up and he was swearing. And he was like, What's happened? You know, what's happened? And I'm, I'm saying it like this, but he was like, What the fuck's happened? And, and I said, Grant, I need your help. I need your help. And he came over to me. And um, I said, Grant, I've, I've lost my eye. And he, he tried to turn me, he tried to get all this stuff, all the, the, the window frames, the door frames. I was entangled in all of that. And he was trying to get it off me and he couldn't get it off me. So he said, Tracy, I need to go get help. So what he did was he he turned me on my back and he put something over my eye and he said when he saw my body, he didn't tell me this at the time, but it looked like a hand grenade had gone off on my body. And he put a blanket over me and he got our grab bag because in Lebanon, you always have a grab bag. So he had our, all of our, our private things, our wedding it's our money, our passports, you know, our, our everything. And he managed to get himself down with a fractured foot down five flights of stairs. They wouldn't allow him back up. Um, but he had said, Teresa, Teresa, Tracy's up there. You need to send her up. And I promise you, Nicole, I just became so calm. And I just lay there and I just practiced on my breathing and I knew help would come. And it came about an hour later because it still was dark, but I could hear them working in the building. I could hear people calling in the building. So I waited for them to come closer to my floor. And then I went, help, help. But I realized that my lungs again had been affected, obviously, with everything. And then finally it was dark and they came in and I went, La Arabic, my barif meaning I don't know, no Arabic, Um, English. So they said, okay. And it wasn't even proper paramedics. It was, as again, just Lebanese citizens doing their duty, helping where they can, anybody
0: that had been injured. One of the reasons that ordinary citizens were having to do the rescue work is because of the massive scale of devastation the blast had caused. There were just too many rescue sites and not enough personnel to cover them. Also, when the ammonium nitrate exploded, the gas that was released into the air was extremely toxic, making it hard for anyone to breathe without masks. This, of course, could also have been one of the reasons that Tracy was finding it difficult to call out. Well, that and half her apartment lying on top of her. I think the fact that this happened at night... Must have made it even more terrifying. Can you imagine this horrific thing having happened to you? Your husband goes off for help, but he doesn't come back. You have no idea if he's okay or not, and you cannot move. You can't see out of one of your eyes, and everything around you, except for the roaring fire across the road, is black. Eventually, These citizen rescuers make it up to Tracy, but they're running on empty as much as everyone else.
1: They had come up with a makeshift plank and they, they helped untangle me. And the funniest thing, Nicole, the only pain that I felt was on my right big toe. My big toenail had come off. Out of all of my injuries, and I'm about to tell you, that is the only pain I felt anyway and they were very dignified they put me on the thing and then they got another blanket and they covered me and then they I kept saying my my toe my big toe and they they kept saying okay okay because every time they moved you know the blanket was on it and was jerking and then they carried me down the stairs and then my next fear was like they're going to tilt me and I'm going to fall down the stairs and that's how I'm going to die this is how I was thinking Anyway, I got um, into an ambulance, and they sent me to the hospital. I was comatose enough to say to the doctor, I'm on blood thinners, um, Eliquis, 2.5 milligrams twice a day. Um, and then he said, thank you. And then a nurse came to me and said, we're about to take you to theater. So I said, can I sleep now? Because the whole time while I was lying there, I remember the movies. You know, they say in the movies, don't sleep, don't fall asleep, because you won't wake up. And she says,
0: yes, you can sleep now.
1: And that was it. I fell asleep.
0: If you laughed at Tracy and her big toe, you are not a horrible person. I laughed too. And so did she. But again, that's a testament to the human mind. Remember Peter and his tussle with his reptilian friend? Remember how many injuries he had? Severe life-ending injuries. And he said he felt a mild discomfort. That's the brain's way of redirecting resources. You don't have the capacity to feel the actual pain you should be feeling right now because we need to survive here. So focus on your big toe and let's just live long enough to get help. Pretty damn amazing. So Tracy's back in hospital, And she's about to lose even more time from her memory.
1: And then I woke up seven days later. Again, I was intubated. This time I wasn't fighting the intubation. Back with the same ICU staff, the nurses that had looked after me so fantastically the first time. And they were like, hey, Tracy, you're back here and everything. And then finally, when they took out the intubator, they said, now we're taking this out. Um, You know, just take it very easy. And then as they took it up, I went, hello. And they were like, oh, my word, you know, because I was talking immediately. I said, water, please. They gave me water. While I was still intubated, I I, I gave them that motion, I want to write on a board. And all I was worried about is Grant. And they told me Grant was in the fifth floor, but he was only in hospital for five days. And then he had been discharged. And then um, when it was fine, then Grant came to see me. And again, my husband was my other hero. I mean, he saved my life twice. Um, And every time, first time he was with me in hospital, from when he was woke up till five o'clock, this time again, he was there every day in hospital with me. This time I was in hospital for eight weeks. A lot of damage had been done to me this time. Um, We'll start from the top. I'd lost my eye, my right eye, I had severe scars on my face, and the tendon at the base of my stem of my brain and my thing had been damaged, so I was in a neck brace for six weeks. My arms, my stomach, and my legs had massive, massive wounds on them, and they had to do skin grafts from my legs to cover the the wounds that were on my legs. Then I had also broken my ankle from the the fall. Um, So they had to do surgery um, and put plates and everything into that. So it was a matter of every day they had to, plastics had to come in and clean my wounds before they could do the skin grafts. And it was very painful. It it wasn't a nice time in hospital, um, but I remained positive. And Grant had told the doctors, nobody's going to tell Tracy she's lost her eye. I will tell her. And I'll never forget the day he said to me, so, you know, your eye, because it was still bandaged up, what are you going to do, you know, if you've lost your eye? And I'll never forget him saying, it's okay, if I've lost my eye, I've got my other eye, and I see perfectly out of it. And he said, you've lost your eye. But I've done research. And in Lebanon, of being the plastics capital of the Middle East, he had shown me what they can do with processes and all of that kind of stuff. And I wasn't worried. I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, what has happened to me? It was like, okay, this is where I am now, like I was the previous time. Let's get better. Let me get healed. Let me go forward, you know. And um, it was a matter of we had lost everything in the blast in our home. But again, the owners of our hotel they put us up in another um, Staybridge self catering apartments, um, and they wanted to get me out of hospital as soon as possible. So they did the surgery on my car, on my ankle and the skin grafts, and once that was done, they, they sent me home. I was very nervous to go home because I had lost a lot of my muscle and I hurt my my left knee. So I couldn't walk on my right leg. I, I couldn't really put pressure on my left knee because it was really sore. So I was in a wheelchair. But that's the only way you get better, actually, is by having to do things for yourself with the help of my husband, of course. I mean, he then, whilst I was in a wheelchair, you know, had to go for a forefinger and he, um, his thumb. He had to have... Um, surgery there on his tendons because he had damaged those so it was like these two invalids making their way around this apartment but we did it and we managed and I got such satisfaction out of every day seeing a little bit of improvement from being able to not being able to get out of bed and into the wheelchair by myself um, to making my way into the wheelchair by myself from my husband having to pick me up to put me into the, to- onto the toilet, from myself wheeling myself into the bathroom, getting myself to stand up, putting myself in the toilet, being able to stand up, putting myself back, and we, we uh, you know, wheeling myself, and and that I think I got such satisfaction in like I can do this, I can get better, and I can you know, and it was the same with the pulmonary embolism, you know, it, I mean, I had to learn how to eat again, I had to learn how to smile again, even it was like really weird, but every day when you make that one little bit of progress, I would reward myself, you know, internally. Well done, Tracy. You can do this. What can you do the next day to make it better?
0: Eventually, with all their operations done, Tracy and Grant decide they need to go back home to South Africa. The hotel Tracy was working at had been destroyed in the blast. She was unemployed, and there was really little left for them in Beirut. They wanted to be back in their home country to recuperate and recover.
1: And we came back to South Africa and we decided to go to St. Francis Bay because that is where my mother um, has a holiday home. And we thought that's the perfect place for me to, um, and Grant, to recuperate. And so we went home and it was a matter of, um, okay, we will take a year off. And then in about a year's time, I'll start looking for a job because it was not a matter of I was never going to work. That was just not even on the cards. Unfortunately, my anxiety came back, but it came back even worse. So I went to see a psychologist to talk about it, where I couldn't walk. I couldn't go downstairs. Um, I was in absolute panic, you know, and um, she arranged for me to see a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist. And she was like, no, there's usually a three-month waiting list. And I was like, no, no, I don't think you understand. I don't have three months to wait to go see a psychiatrist. So she says, well, I work with him. Let me see what I can do. Anyway, I was in Port Elizabeth at my mom's house because that's where my mom lives. And um, it just so happened he phoned me. So it was a week later. And I went to see him, Dr. Faster, And um, he explained to me again, um, uh, two massive massive traumas in my life it's serious PTSD and he put me on medication and he said it's not a quick fix you know and um, again within about four days of taking the medication I started seeing re- you know the difference and again I became independent I could walk I started walking up and down the stairs um, you know first holding a railing then not hurling, holding a railing and every day forcing myself to do to stretch myself a little bit further to you know, improve myself and and rewarding myself internally by saying, you see, you can do it, you can do it. I've got a few sayings, and my one saying is, I survived because the fire in me burned brighter than the fire around me. And I've also
0: got another saying, you never know how strong you are until being strong is your only choice. The fire in Tracy burned brighter than thousands of tons of exploded ammonium nitrate. And being strong was her only choice, so that's what she was. Many of the survivors on this podcast ask themselves, "Why me? Why am I the one that survived this?" Tracy has her own take on that question. Do I believe that I'm the only one that survived, if it happened to somebody else, I believe
1: it would ha- anybody in my situation would push through, would push through, you know. And then it was March, not even a year, March. I'd been home February. Three months I'd been home and I was approached by somebody on LinkedIn They're opening up this project in, um, you know, uh, Mozambique, its home-based position. And they're looking for a director of sales and marketing to be based in South Africa. And you would set up your own team and everything. Is this something you'd be interested in? And everybody was like, Tracy, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm Sure. You know, this is perfect. I'm working from home. I can still go walking in the mornings, doing my exercise. I'm still in a a wonderful setting, you know, um, to recover. And I went for a hundred rounds of interviews and I got the job. And I was like in my element. And, you know, I just hit hit it and I just took it all in my stride. And I employed my team in Cape Town and Johannesburg. And I'd go visit them once a month. Um, and then I was also seeing a lady called Dr. Judy Pretorius. Um, and Dr. Judy Pretorius owns a company called Biomedical Emporium. And she's a bio scientist, if I can do it. And she creates products to heal burn victims and um, people with bad scars. And I had made contact with her in Lebanon already. My sister had found her. And I started going to her when I came back. And I go to Cape Town once a month. And she's been working on the scars on my face. So um, she's been phenomenal in working with my face, my facial scars. And then I also saw Dr. Hamza Mustak. And he's a head of ophthalmology for people with cancer. So he specializes in plastics. So he also looks after my eye for me. So I've really got such a good support structure here in Cape Town. So I go to Cape Town once a month. I see my team once a month, do my shopping because I love my shopping, go have my face done, go see Dr. Hamza because they both bathe together. And then I go back and I'm um, in St. Francis and I now walk between six and eight kilometers every day on my own, you know, with my aunt around me and the people. I started swimming because um, I love swimming and I swim an hour every alternative day. And so I'm back to being that Tracy that can function in society. I'm, I'm proud of who I am. Um, and plus, I then got offered um to go to greece to corfu for 45 days for interim project as director of sales and marketing and a corfu in greece which is part of the banyan tree brand because they were waiting for their director of sales and marketing to start and she could only start in two months so i took myself on a plane and i flew to corfu in greece and i had to hire a sales and marketing team i had to get everything in order I had to host site inspections. I was doing what I loved, and I always say, you choose a job you love, and you never have to work a day in your life. And I lived my life. I was exploring Corfu. I was working my arse off. Sorry, I was working so hard, and I was partying so hard, you know. And I was, and I had to go home after forty-five days. I missed, I missed my husband. It was time to come home. I had done my handover. And I came back and I've carried on working here with Banyan Tree in South Africa. And um, yes, so, I mean, that's my story in a nutshell. And um, my biggest other trauma, I must tell you, besides my big toe, the other trauma, I mean, if you see my facial scars, you don't really notice them. But at the time, it it was quite bad. I can send you pictures. Was I had long, long hair and I loved my hair. And when I went in after the blast, I mean, they just hacked my hair off because obviously I had a, 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 a sore at the back of my head. And I mean, they were just, they were in crisis mode in the hospitals. Two hospitals had been destroyed in the blast as well. So they were just getting hundreds and thousands of people coming in. So they just had to do what they had to do. And I didn't know my hair had been cut off until they took off the neck brace. And um, my husband just went, Your hair's gone. And I was devastated. And if you think about all the things that had been wrong with my body, that was what was traumatic for me. You know, you know there, there were worse things that had happened. I lost my arm, my, my legs are disfigured in a certain kind of way, but they, these are all my scars that I carry and I carry them with pride and I don't hide my scars. Like I walk around with my scars on my arms, you know, and I'm not scared to cover them up. you know um, They've got a story to tell. and for me, if I can inspire anybody with my story, what I've been through has been worth it because a lot of people are shocked and like they call me a survivor, you are a warrior. You know, they can't believe what I've been through, but I've come out the other end, a a better person, a stronger person, a more empathetic person. And, And I feel in my life, I would love to inspire people. You know, I've realized that's my calling is to inspire people, not only in my work, which is what I currently do do, but in telling my story because a lot of people are suffering with what's happened with COVID, you know, um, losing their jobs, losing people to COVID. Lots of people go through depression, all these kind of things. And if my story can inspire anybody, it's
0: been worth it. My journey has been worth it. There's two things that I wanted to touch on from what Tracy said here. The first is her slight embarrassment at having been so traumatized by the loss of her hair. And really, I'm not entirely surprised by that. For women, whether it's a societal thing or not, for some reason our femininity feels intrinsically linked to our hair, no matter whether we wear it short or long. So that actually makes sense. It's one of the reasons that women living with cancer struggle so much emotionally when they start to lose their hair from chemo, and also one of the reasons that projects like Locks of Love are so important in collecting human hair donations for people who have lost their hair to illness or injury. The second thing I wanted to touch on here is something I mentioned to Tracy about her surprise at how her co-workers were so willing to help her. She assigned that to the general kindness of the people of Lebanon. But I personally think there's more to it. I worked in a corporate environment for 20 years. And let me tell you that sadly you will not find very many leaders that openly say that one of the most important parts of their job is inspiring others to grow. When you find a leader like that, you will move heaven and earth for them. And Tracy's team did just that. Yes, because perhaps they are a naturally kind people. But really, because Tracy is the person she is. She earned that help, and it presented itself when she needed it the most. Tracy recently fell while she was walking her dog and broke her hand. Yes, she did this whole interview with a broken hand. And she was to have an operation the day after I interviewed her. She told me that the doctors were amazed at her pain threshold. One doctor looked at her like she was an alien when she said, It's only slightly sore if I touch it. And he told her, Well, you either have an insanely high pain threshold or you're a superhuman. Tracy laughed at that. I personally think it's a bit of both. Tracy recalled a poignant moments that she was told about when she recovered from her pulmonary embolism. When her life was hanging by such a fine thread, her doctor had, uncharacteristically for a medical professional perhaps, informed her husband that if he didn't believe in any higher power, he should probably pick one and start praying because he had done all he could as a surgeon, and if Tracy was going to live, it would be nothing short of a miracle. I am absolutely honoured to have been able to bring you Tracy's story. She really is an incredible example of a survivor, and I have no doubt that she will go on to inspire many more people. I will be sharing photographs of Tracy's various experiences that she's given me permission to use on social media. So check those out and leave your comments for Tracy on our social media pages.
1: I lived
0: through this. ...tells the true stories of ordinary people who've survived unimaginable situations. If you'd like to share your story of survival, you can head over to our Facebook page and fill in the form... ...or you can email this at gmail.com. I lived Through This releases new stories every second week. In between, you can head over to our social media platforms... ...we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and join in the conversation with our survivors. Thank you for listening.